0: The following sermon was delivered on July 4th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled Finding Favor on Ruth 2, 1 through 13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from his word boys and girls, will you do me a favor after the service tonight? Can you make sure to clean up all of the papers on the floor and and on the pews and tucked into the hymnal racks on the back of the pews? Can you do that for me? Can you do me that favor? Well, certainly you can do that, but the question is, will you do that? That's the real question. Will you do me that favor? Or put another way, Will I find favor with you, boys and girls?" We seek for favor all the time, don't we? When you go away for a few days, you ask a trusted neighbor to watch over your house or to mow your lawn. Uh, When you need a book for school, and so you ask a classmate if you can borrow his copy, I get that request for a favor all the time, having all my books at the school. Or when you have an itch in that difficult-to-reach place between the shoulder blades and you ask your husband or your wife to get it for you. You know, there's more serious quests for favor, even in our everyday lives. Um, when you've applied for a job, you are looking for favor with that potential employer. When, when you uh, seek for a loan on a home, you're hoping for favor with the bank. When you ask for diaconal assistance, perhaps or prayed to God for the well-being of his church and the extension of Christ's kingdom, you're seeking for very serious favor. In all these instances, and many more besides, you and I hope to find favor with God and with man as his instruments. Well, in our passage tonight, Ruth is looking for favor, and she finds it. She finds it in spades in the important figure of Boaz of Bethlehem. She seeks and she finds, and then hope, hope takes root in her story. Something which was absent before comes in and takes root. We have sharp physical and spiritual needs that confront us each and every day, and certainly Ruth felt that herself, and yet she finds favor. She's experienced famine, self-inflicted exile, at least in Naomi's family, and then she experiences the fallout of that death widowhood and childlessness but now Ruth and in fact Naomi's little family the two of them find favor and hope in Ruth's courageous excursion into the Judean barley harvest where we left off a couple weeks ago is where we pick up and Ruth finds favor now there may not be many of you or any of you or us that need to go into a barley harvest in coming weeks or months to glean leftover grains I'd be very surprised if that was the case. But you and I are needy, and we need favor from God. That is our great need. In two parts, the narrative this evening shows us that needy people, such as Ruth and Naomi, you and me, that we will find favor with God only through the grace of Christ the King in our passage represented by Boaz, and I hope to make that clear. Again, you shall find favor with God only through the grace of Christ the King. The first part of the narrative in verses 1 through 3 set the scene with the search for favor. And then the second part of the narrative extending to verse 13 shows the gift of grace. So let's consider the search for favor. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now notice, there are two important details given to us. Uh, from the narrative at this point in these first three verses. First, the text introduces us to Boaz. We haven't seen his name before. I mentioned him in my previous sermons on this text, but this is the first time, or on this book, but this is the first time that his name actually appears. That's significant. We learn that he was of the family of Elimelech. His presence brackets the little section. Notice how in verse 1 and in verse 3, he's mentioned by name in connection to that family. These are significant details that I need you to keep in mind as we work through the text. Secondly, the text reveals something of Ruth's virtue in a very brief dialogue with Naomi, followed by prompt action. So who is this Boaz? And how does he relate to the search for favor described in our text? How does he relate to what Ruth is doing? Well, verse 1 provides us with three characteristic features of Boaz, he's a kinsman or relative of Naomi's husband, which makes him a kinsman of Naomi as well, he's a man of great wealth, and he is of the family of Elimelech. Together, these three details give us a profile of Boaz, a a profile speaking to and of his royal strength and pedigree. How so? Well, first, as a relative of Naomi's husband, Boaz is in a position to give a particular kind of favor or relief to Naomi and to Ruth. Deuteronomy 25 tells us why. I mentioned it before, but I'll I'll rehearse those details again. In that portion of the judicial law, which was to govern the old covenant church of God, dwelling in the physical promised land, God made provision for women whose husbands die before begetting sons. He makes provision for the most helpless Of uh, people in society, and that provision was leveret marriage, or the uh, kinsman redeemer, marriage to a kinsman redeemer. As a close relative of Naomi's husband, Boaz is in fact in a position to then provide for Ruth and Naomi exactly what they need in their desperate circumstance. God can solve their problem through him, but yet I've said this is an aspect of his royal profile. Why is that? Well, similarly, God will bring forth a king from Boaz's descendants, solving a long-standing problem in Israel. You see this relation here. Ruth is not just a story about addressing a problem of one family. It's a story of addressing the problem that we see at the end of Judges, if I may remind you, that there was no king in Israel. And so there's chaos and unruliness and idolatry. And so Boaz comes in as a royal figure here addressing their problem and then also, as we anticipate, knowing the end of the story, addressing the bigger social, religious problem. Second, he's also a man of great wealth, we're told. The phrase here in verse 1 might just as well be translated in a man mighty of or in strength. A man mighty of strength. Similar language describes the famous Judge Gideon when the angel greets him as a valiant warrior in Judges 6.12. But why describe Boaz this way? Our translators uh, interpret it as he's a man of economic strength, so they say he has great wealth. That's certainly the case. But he doesn't appear to command any kind of military might, so why not just talk about he's rich? Well, he's a wealthy landowner. He's an important community leader. He, in fact, is a man of valiant strength in his community in Bethlehem. In chapter 4, we find out that he commands the respect of the elders of Bethlehem, and he clearly commands the respect of his workmen here in chapter 2 in the passage I read. Boaz is a man of means. He's a leader in his place. In other words, he's the kind of man from whose house could emerge a king. And it is appropriate that he is described in the royal terms, then, of mighty strength, and not merely as a possessor of great fields or something. The third detail about Boaz in verse 1 is that he is of the family of Elimelech and that's repeated for us in verse 3. This clarifies and then reinforces the fact that he's a kinsman to Naomi, but it also goes further than that. It anticipates the ending of the story in a clearer way. Through this man and through his clan, the family of Elimelech shall come a king for Israel, King David. And the text presents to us this family line as bearing the marks of royalty even several generations before David's birth in the person and place of Boaz. Only after establishing the man's relationship to Naomi, his position in society, and then also his ability to help and significance for the future of Israel does the text give us his name, Boaz. Clearly, this man will play a central role in redeeming Naomi and Ruth from their poverty and need. He will also be the father of a line of kings, beginning with his great-grandson David. Now most significantly, through the line of Boaz, running through the line of David, shall come forth the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne of David, even now ruling and defending us. What Boaz possesses in seed form, Jesus Christ possesses in full flower. He is preeminently in a position to help, to redeem sinners from their need and desperation, being both God and man commissioned as, as we read, the sole mediator, go between, between God and man. In Christ alone, we can be reconciled to God and brought before the Father as redeemed sons and daughters, for He is, in fact, our kinsman, bearing our flesh. Christ the King has the wealth of all creation at His disposal to order things rightly for the good of His church and the glory of His Father. And the very riches of heaven are at His beck and call to supply for our every spiritual need. And He is the root and branch of Jesse, of David, of the clan of Elimelech, of the tribe of Judah, from whom shall never depart the scepter of God's righteous power and might. How is it that Ruth comes into his orbit? How does she encounter him? And what might we learn from her story of encountering grace and finding favor? Our text characterizes Boaz as a royal uh, figure and able to provide relief to Naomi. I hope that I've established that, but it demonstrates to us that Ruth is a woman of exceptional virtue. And doing these two things, showing us Boaz and showing us Ruth in their character, it truly captures the purpose. Of the book of Ruth. You know, sometimes, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, I don't think I have, but sometimes the book of Ruth is placed between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Hebrew canon, just as it is in most, if not all, of our English Bibles. And it's it's positioned there, usually understood, to give an explanation for how God is going to address the problem in Judges with the solution of the kingship. I've already mentioned that. It tells us about the coming of the royal line to relieve Israel of the chaos and terror that they were experiencing. And that's why the book ends with the word David. Um, But sometimes the book of Ruth is placed immediately after Proverbs. Why would that be the case? In fact, almost all the time, Ruth is described as being a part of that section of the Hebrew canon. Well, perhaps to illustrate from history, true history, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, that industrious and diligent woman that's described there for us. These opening verses of chapter 2 hit upon both of these themes, don't they? both uh, that Ruth is a virtuous woman of action and that Boaz is a great royal figure to bring order out of chaos. Notice what Ruth does as a virtuous woman of action, as a Proverbs 31 woman. She humbly but earnestly approaches Naomi with a proposition to pursue relief for the two of them. What does she want to do in verse 2? She wants to go, she wants to glean in the field, and what does she then do in verse 3 after Naomi tells her to go? She departs, she goes, she gleans in the field, she comes to a particular field belonging to Boaz. The text is full of verbs. It's full of Ruth's action, what she's doing. This woman will not taste of the bread of idleness, as we're warned against in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, which I read. For she's much too busy getting to work. May Ruth be an example to each of us, and especially to you, my sisters and girls. It is much too easy for us in an age of automation and leisure and the glorification of retirement to fall into habitual idleness. I'm not saying don't relax. You must relax and rest in order to work diligently. But our age glorifies idleness and therapeutic leisure, or so-called self-care. Stop up your ears against our culture's siren song to those things. Resist that idolatry and consider Ruth. Consider Ruth set before us as an example of godliness from the Old Testament. She had nothing and very few prospects, and yet she ran headlong through the one, the one only, possibly, legitimate opportunity she had, according to the Leviticus chapters 19 and 23, which described the whole gleaning in the fields um, provision for uh, those in poverty in Israel. She didn't even know. She didn't even know. Think about this. She was a Moabite test. She didn't even know if that law would apply to her, perhaps. Perhaps she had doubts, and yet she claimed God as her God, and his people as her people, and she went forth in faith with earnestness, pursuing the right to pick up the meager leftovers of the barley harvest. Why does she do this? It's because she's selfish and hungry and seeking to satisfy some kind of appetite? No. Notice that she asks Naomi for permission. She, she's doing this for the two of them. She's saying, what do you think of this plan, Naomi? Can I do this? And then how does she do it? She doesn't do it presumptuously. She does it in great humility, knowing that she has no social standing in Israel, knowing that it will only be, it will be only because of unmerited favor that she will be permitted rights to then glean in the fields of God's people. And she happens. Literally, the text says, where the New American Standard reads, she happened. It's literally her chance chanced upon like she got lucky and stumbled into completely by sheer luck. That's, that's what the text is communicating to us. She happens to come to Boaz's field. But you and I know that though from her perspective, it would seem like sheer luck, that God is behind all of it. That this happened in his providence. In his providence, as Boaz will, will show to us later on in the passage, she comes into a field where she does find that favor, which she was seeking. Consider her motivation and her manner, her selflessness and her humility. Why do you do what you do? Let us confess our selfishness. So often what we do is just for ourselves, or even if it seems to benefit others, yet the primary motivation is for our own good. No matter how selfless we may think we are, yet each of us carries within us a disposition of selfishness. We need to be redeemed from that, and God does redeem that. He does redeem us from that? Ruth here pictures for us the selflessness of Christ. I'm not saying she's perfect, but she gives us a glimpse of His selflessness as it as it comes through in her actions of Christ, who did all things for His Father and for His Church, and not at all for Himself. All things for the joy set before Him, the joy of seeing His Father glorified by redeemed people. Can any of us, fathers, mothers, grandparents, daughters, sons, church officers, ministry workers, seminary students, can any of us come close to the selflessness of Christ, who gave up His life for wretched sinners, that His Father might win glory and praise from a church of redeemed saints. No matter how many dirty diapers we change, how many sleepless nights we have, how many hours of overtime we put into the church or to our Christian employers, no matter what we do, we cannot come close to the selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done so much. His work is infinitely valuable. Why do you do what you do? Secondly, how do you do what you do? Let us consider our pride and our arrogance, brothers and sisters. No matter how humble we may think we are, yet each of us carries around within us the ugliness of pride. I know I do. Ruth here pictures for us the humility of Christ, who though he could claim all the kingdoms of the earth as his own, yet... He came into the world as a man scorned in some backwater Roman province, put down by the world. Can any of us come close to the humility of Christ, who set aside the glory of heaven to take to himself human flesh, entering into our condition that weary sinners like us then might become heirs of the glory that belongs to him in praise to God? he was preeminently a stranger in a strange land that we might be familiars in heavenly places in ruth's search for favor we see two aspects of christlikeness pictured for us we behold the promising profile of royal boaz and the excellent virtue of humble ruth now do these traits do they excite you when you consider them Do you prize Christ who possessed them in perfect measure? Do you yearn to possess them for yourself by the power of the Spirit of God whom Christ alone has sent? Whom the Father through Christ alone has sent? Are you seeking after the favor of God in Christ? Even these three verses put that question before us. Now, in the second section of our text, verses 4 through 13, the characters of Ruth and Boaz, they take on a deeper dimension as we see their complementary virtues encounter one another in an exchange, in a dialogue. In fact, in the first uh, two of three interactions that they'll have in this chapter, in these verses, Ruth receives from Boaz the gift of grace. The gift of grace. Let's look at verses 4 through 13. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "'Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the male servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the male servants draw.' Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, "'Why have I found favor in your sight?' that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Whenever someone gives you a gift, you need to receive it. And there are unique features to both the giving and the receiving of a gift. And as we seek to understand the gift of grace in the encounter between Boaz and Ruth, we must consider both the giving of the gift on Boaz's part, and the receiving of the gift on Ruth's part. First, the giving of the gift. Ruth has demonstrated great and earnest initiative in humbly entering Boaz's field to gather gleanings from the harvest, not knowing that she would in fact receive favor from this man. The question lingering in her mind from verse two was, will I find favor? Indeed she does. Boaz showers her with favor. After investigating the circumstances of her presence in his portion of the field, he gives her direction and protection, direction and protection. He directs her to remain in the field, and he clearly defines what all that entails for her, including the provision of water even. And he also promises her protection from either assault, impropriety, the appearance of evil, or, or both, as he directs her to stick close to his female servants in the field. A brief aside, in the workplace, the most productive workers are those who receive clear directions and assurances of protection from their employers. We see Boaz doing that even here with Ruth. We imagine he does that with his other workers. While working as an assistant sales manager at a musical instrument uh, store right out of college, it was my first real full-time job, I ran into a terrible situation um, where one of our employees was accusing the entire management team of wrongdoing. And he picked out a couple of us in particular. I'm not sure why, but he was making wild accusations against us, seeking I think to intimidate us for some purpose. And I remember going into the, the store manager's office, my boss, and I was really shook up one day. I mean, I, I was scared. I was worried that my standing at the company was uh, in danger it could be in jeopardy, that I might even get fired or that this guy who was making uh, these wild allegations might try to take legal action against each of us personally even. And I didn't know what was going on. And when I went to my boss's office, uh, his name's Ken, Ken calmly admitted that he couldn't promise me or anyone else anything. He was very calm in how he did it. But he also assured me that he was doing everything in his power to bring the situation to a resolution. He even went beyond that and he assured me that the district manager, his boss, was personally invested in this and was doing everything he could to protect us from this this wild employee of ours who was casting aspersions on, on our business practices and our character. And you know, that's all I needed. All I needed right then in the middle of my shift was that word of reassurance that he had my back, that he was doing what he could to protect his team myself included. Now, I'm giving Ruth clear directions here in this passage. And in giving her protection and even describing that for her, Boaz empowered her to complete that task which she had begun. She was probably resting in that house, weary, working in the hot Judean sun. Can you imagine what a blessing his words would be to her? What an encouragement to carry on Boaz's confidence evident in the passage in giving authoritative direction and also describing this protection over Ruth. It's not born out of crass self-reliance. He's not you know, just some guy swaggering onto the scene. He's, I own this place. I can do what I want. He's not drunk with personal power. No. He's a deeply pious man. Let me build the case. Consider first to whom he's giving this gift of permission to glean in his fields. Ruth's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite widow, the lowest of the low in Bethlehem. But he recognizes that she is with Naomi, that she claims Naomi's God and Naomi's people as her own, and that she is in the field as much for Naomi as for herself. In fact, he commends her for this in verses 12 and 13. And he does so as a man of great personal piety himself. How does he greet his workers in verse 5? He greets them in the name of the Lord. This was just a throwaway detail and a custom. I don't think it would have been included in our text. But in fact, the first word out of Boaz's mouth in the narrative is the name of the covenant God, Yahweh. It's Yahweh bless you. What kind of work environment has he cultivated in the fields? Well, his servants not only respond to him in the name of the Lord, but they've already made room for Ruth, even in his absence. And they will not go against Boaz's direction to let her go about her gleaning work without being bothered. They're going to be obedient to him. He can, in confidence that they are pious themselves, promise her protection. In giving the gift of grace in these verses... Boaz demonstrates something of the protective love of God, a love which you should receive from God as he spreads his wings of protection over you in Christ Jesus. This is precisely the metaphor that Jesus uses in his lament over Jerusalem, rejecting him in Matthew 23, 37. God in Christ demonstrates his desire to protect his people. Does it in Matthew 23. He does it here in Ruth chapter 2. Are you flocking to Christ for shelter from the holy and just wrath of God, the malicious assaults of Satan and his minions, and even from your own sin and all its consequences, well, if not, I I urge you to turn, to run to the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, under whose wings are shelter, comfort, and assurance of protection from all spiritual danger, How then do we receive the gift of His grace? Ruth herself leads the way. And in so doing, as we look at her response, her receiving of the gift of grace, we'll also unpack a bit more of the piety, the heart of piety that Boaz has. Having found favor from Boaz, how does Ruth respond? How does she receive this gift? Well, in three ways. With reverence. With wonder. And then, with description of what exactly she understands she had received. First, with reverence in verse 10. Briefly, look at her immediate response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him. This picture of falling on one's face and bowing to the ground is the most common picture of worship in the Old Testament. One commentator went so far as to say, Ruth worshipped Boaz, not as God, but just showing the highest respect to him having received grace from him. That was her knee-jerk response. Her immediate response was to bow before him in, in reverent respect for what he's done for her. How is it that we respond to the reminders that we receive, the calls that we, we receive, the, um, just the, when we examine and meditate upon the grace of God, how do we respond to that? Do we respond with worship and praise? um, Every time I I receive news from Dr. Piper or one of the other commissioners about what had been decided this past week in the assembly, and, and I don't want to be partisan or parochial, but every time I heard something and it was good news to my ears, I said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. I was overwhelmed with His favor. And that's just one small thing compared to what you and I, each of us, receive in Christ Jesus as He calls us personally, individually, and corporately together to be His people. You've welcomed me into your courtrooms. I praise the Holy One of God, the risen Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The second thing that Ruth uh, brings in as she receives from Boaz this gift of grace, she, she responds with wonder. Look at what she says in verse 10. Why? Have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? When we get to heaven, if we're granted one question before the throne, the question I would ask, and I didn't come up with this, I've heard others say it as well, but it resonates deeply with me, is I would ask God, why me? Why me? We frequently ask that question when bad things happen to us, don't we? Why me, O God? And that's not inappropriate. You can bring that before the Lord. But when the greatest gift that we're given, resurrection life, glorification in the immediate presence of God, the question that would be on my mind is, why me? Why was I made a guest when so many pass up the invitation, when so many perish and march into hell with glee. Why is it that God plucked me out of the fire, as it were? It's wonder. There's no reason that He can give other than because I am good and I do all things well. I mean, are you struck with the wonder of God's grace being showered upon you in salvation, in any good thing in your life? Boaz gives a similar answer in verse 12. Notice that he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. In speaking that to Ruth, we see something further of Boaz's piety. He understands this gift that he's giving to Ruth as a gift from the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He is in essence saying, when she says, why have I found favor with you? He says, because God is good and does all things well. Not because, well, you happen to come into my field out of sheer luck and I have a lot of extra barley and so why not? And not not because, well, you have hitched yourself up to Naomi and you're serving her by doing this. He gives those details to let her know he knows who she is. But he says... Why you? May you find favor with God. May you be blessed by Him under whose wings you have sought out shelter and refuge. And then Ruth describes this favor. She's worshipped. She's been struck with wonder. And then she says in verse 13, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord. How? For you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though... I am not like one of your maidservants. You've comforted me in my distress. She was without anything in the world. Like I said, no prospects. And he comes and he speaks comfortably to her to strengthen her, to encourage her. You've spoken kindly to me. Literally, you've spoken to the heart of your maidservant. And... She says, though I am not like one of your maidservants, though I am undeserving of any favor, though I have no claim on you and all of your good things, yet you love me. Hasn't Christ done the same for us? That Christ died for the unrighteous. That when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ died for the unrighteous. This picture that We're given in Ruth's receiving uh, grace and comfort and a great gift from Boaz. It's it's a picture that reminds us that, that we'll find favor with God only through the grace of Jesus Christ the King. There's nowhere else that we'll find God's favor. There aren't multiple paths up the mountain. But it's only in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, that we will receive favor. And I've spoken with many people whose testimonies, myself included, are such that it really didn't make much sense how they ended up there. I, I met one guy who got, he was a Job's Witness, and he got saved at an Amway meeting, and I don't even know how that happens, really. But whether it appears to be out of sheer luck or happenstance, yet it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of sinners. In Him you shall find favor with God, in Him alone and in His grace. This past week, we found favor at the General Assembly. The sermon's not about that, but I can't stop thinking about this application. It was on my mind during our 11-hour drive home. Joe, Dale, and I were talking about it extensively. You know, I was reflecting. I worked really hard in a lot of random ways toward this result, fully expecting the opposite and not because of anything I did, or anything the GRN did, or anything other concerned Presbyterians have done, God turned the hearts of men to show the world, but more importantly, to offer to him a faithfulness, which I thought was absent from our denomination. And I was overwhelmed, emotionally overwhelmed. I was so deeply invested in this. It caught me off guard. I was also very exhausted, but I was tearing up about deliberations in an ecclesiastical court. I was just overwhelmed, but I kept on coming back to this. It's not for any work we've done. It's not for any merit of our own. But rather, I said, God, we have found favor in your sight. You've comforted us. You've indeed dealt kindly with us, not according to our iniquities, not as our sins deserve, though we are so frequently unfaithful and faithless, yet you have been faithful to us. Let's bring it down out of the national church level back, back home. Each of us and each one of us need to be reminded, I think daily, that there's nothing we do, no merit of our own, but only the merit of Christ. Only in Him, out of the abundance of God's goodness, that we find favor with God the Father. And I simply put before you from this text, do you believe that? Could preach it, look, Ruth did all this work and she deserved it, but that's not her response. She says, why have I found favor? Why? though I'm not like one of yours. And as we continue through the text, we'll see, as we continue through the book, I should say, in a couple of weeks, we'll see how it is that God blesses not just this woman, not just her mother-in-law, but in fact, The whole nation, all those who call upon the name of Christ, you and me, in this little narrative that we have before us. What wonder of wonders is this, this glorious book, this message of God's saving grace in Christ? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.